To the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willies, Jimmy Hall, and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the history of music mecca muscle shells. We taped this episode during the W.C. Handy Music Festival at the Nuthouse Recording Studio in Sheffield, Alabama, where many of this area's most recent music has been recorded, including the Grammy-winning bluegrass album The Muscle Shoals Recordings by The Steel Drivers, and albums and tracks by Alabama Shakes, St. Paul and the Broken Bones, Jason Isbell, and James LeBlanc. Holger Peterson is a record producer, radio broadcaster, and record label owner. He started Stony Plain Records in 1975 and has been on the air on Canadian radio for over 40 years. He's collaborated with many of the greatest musicians of Roots Music and has released many of those artists' releases on his label. He's also released two books called Talking Music and Talking Music 2 on Insomniac Press. And uh, I met Holger earlier this year at Medem in France, and we immediately discovered that we have a lot of common interests and a love for music, love for record collecting. And uh, it is my pleasure to have him on my podcast today. Holger, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and it's absolutely my pleasure, uh, my pleasure Andreas. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I... Uh, Knowing that we have that much in common, and knowing how much you know about music, I knew you were in. Uh, you were an instant um, person I thought of when I when I was casting my my podcast because I knew we wouldn't run out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> but maybe let let's just go back and kind of start at the beginning. How did you discover your your love for music initially? Well, I guess like a lot of uh, people uh, approximately my age, it would be uh, listening to Top 40 radio and uh, discovering um, British invasion music. And, and you know, it hit me at a time uh, when people all of a sudden, you know, you're looking for something to identify with. And, and for me, that was that rebellious rock and roll created by the Beatles and, and the Stones and uh, the British invasion bands. And uh, recognizing that uh, that so much of this was uh, R&B and blues influenced, and that kind of started me in that uh, direction, uh, collecting records. There used to be a place that serviced 45s in Edmonton, Alberta, where I'm from, and um, the ones that were into the jukeboxes in northern Alberta and central Alberta 
there were two two places that serviced those jukeboxes and and they would have the ones that weren't popular enough to be in the jukebox or the ones that were kind of worn and this and that they would have them in these bins five for a dollar so on saturday afternoons i'd be flipping through bins and starting to collect records and read the credits on records um you know songwriting credits you know, it would say recorded in England or uh, produced by. You'd see these uh, various things, and then eventually you'd realize that certain record labels did certain kinds of music. So that was where my uh, interest really developed, was uh, collecting these records and, and listening to them, of course, listening to a lot of B-sides. Yeah, and how did this affection for music and it, its, its details translate into you wanting to turn this into your your profession i wanted to be a drummer and um i you know would have drumsticks uh, in my hand a lot um i uh uh i remember just recently this kind of came back to me when i was in high school i had these little binders you know you're always you know sitting in class and i'd be drawing drums and and had a uh, um uh a desire to uh, to play drums and I started taking drum lessons and bought some cheap drums and and then uh, eventually played with a few different bands you know basement bands just covering material learning songs and and um, learning um, about crafting crafting songs and arrangements that sort of thing yeah and then you started um, producing records Yes. And can you tell me a little bit how you, how you got into that and, and what kind of artists kind of uh, were part of those early productions? Sure. Well, I have to credit there's a radio network in Alberta, CKUA, that's a public broadcasting network that's the oldest public broadcaster in Canada. And I started doing radio shows and uh, specifically a blues show on that station. And that uh, gave me the opportunity to interview artists as they came through, and um, I was also writing reviews and that sort of thing. And then in 1972, uh, after finding out a little bit about, you know, working in radio stations, being able to record a little bit in radio stations, you know, some of my friends, I, I booked a studio and uh, this local band called Hot Cottage, um, I booked them to come in and, and we were going to do a couple of songs, which hopefully was going to turn out to be a 45. Well, that same time period, April of 1972, Willie Dixon's Chicago Blues All-Stars came through Edmonton, and the band included uh, Walter Horton on harmonica, big Walter Shaky Horton, one of the true legends of Chicago Blues harmonica, who was previously with Muddy Waters and even the Memphis Jug Bands. He had a long, long history. Um, they came through, and I was backstage. I did interviews with Willie Dixon, and I met Walter. Uh, he was very reclusive, but Willie was uh, very generous. And he said, well, you know, we're going to be in town for a few days. Um, why don't you come and hang out at the hotel? We can do some more interviews if you like. And I said, great. So the next day I was there hanging out in Willie's room. And Walter um, knocked on the door and came and visited. And, and uh, he had gone to the liquor store. He got a bottle of teacher's scotch. And and uh, so I said, uh, do you mind if I do an interview with you? And he said, sure. So he was staying down the hall. And I did an interview with him. And I said, I've got studio time booked I, tomorrow. I know you're not traveling tomorrow. Would you be interested in doing a session? And he said, sure. So 
that was incredible that uh, such a famous harmonica player would be in town at the same time as I'm recording a blues band, and, and that's how that unfolded. That was the first single, and we actually got London Records in Canada to release it, and that was enough to inspire me to bring Walter Horton back in the fall of 1972, and we did a full album with him and the band Hot Cottage then. Yeah, and uh, you told me that for some of your early productions, you would actually go out to California to get a mix. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about yeah. that and some of the, the places you worked at and some of the, the, the people and artists you met there? Sure. Well, you know, after doing Walter Horton, that was done in a four-track studio. Um, the owner of the studio said, you know, this is really good stuff. You should really mix it somewhere else, you know. And I know some people at Wally Hyder's in San Francisco. You could go down and mix it. And um, uh, that, was, uh, uh, that was advice that I followed. So uh, I ended up on a couple of projects going down to, uh, to Walter to uh, to Wally Hyder's and they assigned Jim Gaines to produce uh, to to mix the records that I was working on and we would do that in the morning so Jim was the new guy he had just arrived from Memphis and was working at Wally Hyder's in San Francisco and they rolled out this old four track which they didn't they wouldn't use there except for mixing a project like mine and uh, set it up and so we work in the morning when nobody else was working we got this amazing rate and and uh, I was staying across the street at this flea bag of a hotel called the Laf Lafayette. They called it the Laugh-A-Lot. <laughs> and I got to know some of the, uh, the people in the studio who, you know, took pity on this guy from northern Canada and said, you know, we have a lounge here with a pool table and pinball machines and coffee. Just come and hang out here. You know, you don't have to uh, stay at the hotel <laughs> all day. Um, and that, that was really, really wonderful because um, hanging out in that lounge, um, I ended up being invited into control rooms and studios where Herbie Hancock was recording his album called Septant. That was really great. Uh, David Briggs, who was Neil Young's producer, was working on a project. He invited me in and I was a fly on the wall. So that was really wonderful for me to, to have that kind of um, uh, you know, experience to be just sitting there watching how people made records. Yeah, so that at that time you, you started producing your first album. You were a drummer or at that point too, and you already were, uh, had your own radio show. What made you add record label owner to your already busy schedule? Yeah, after um, the 1972 uh, Walter Horton record, um, I brought um, Roosevelt Sykes to Alberta and organized some live shows for him and recorded an album. Uh, Johnny Shines, who I was especially fond of, uh, came from Alabama and uh, we recorded an album and then the next year I brought him back and uh, we did another album uh, and I was producing a few other people but every time I produced a record I would then go have to try and find a way to get it released and back then Transatlantic Records in Europe uh, released a couple um, and I, was, I had a couple of uh, labels in, in New York that were interested in my roots music um, but still, the process was a long one, and I had my own money invested in it, um, uh, such as it was. 
So um, my Canadian uh, label that I was licensing to was London Records. And then I just thought, well, I'm doing so much of this myself. I'm producing it. I'm doing the artwork and that sort of thing, delivering all this. Um, so I asked London, I said, well, what if I started my own label? Would you distribute it? And they said, sure. So Stony Plain Records uh, was formed in the fall of 1975 by uh, myself and Alvin Johns, who was a chartered accountant, and we're still partners. Um, and the first record came out in 1976, and that was an artist by the name of Paul Han, a local Edmonton artist at the time. And that was the very first uh, Stony Plain record, and now there's a, over 400 yeah, and you, you work with a, a, a long list of amazing artists, and I would, would love for you to just kind of comment on a few of those and maybe single out how you got in touch with that artist initially and to maybe also some memorable moment uh, attached to that collaboration. And I would love to uh, to start with a dark psalm. Yeah. How, how did that co collaboration come about? Yeah, well, after... Stony Plain uh, was in business for about four or five, six years. Um, I had only released maybe a dozen records, and they were generally records I had been involved in producing myself. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be taken seriously as a label, um, I'm going to have to put more releases out on Stony Plain. So then I started licensing, and at the time, um, we started licensing uh, the Sugar Hill record label and um, Ricky Skaggs and, and um, Tony Rice and some really cool things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then that led to um, Rounder Records. We started licensing releases for Canada on Rounder Records. And then that led to High Tone Records and, and um working with individual uh, labels, um, picking up various things. And, and at Midem one year, uh, Sonnet Records, uh, a Swedish company, uh, were recording and releasing the Sir Douglas Quintet. And I was a big fan, and, and so we picked up the Canadian rights. Rounder picked up the U.S. rights. And then after the next record, Rounder passed on it, so we got the North American rights for the Sir Douglas Quintet, um, the next couple of records. And I hadn't met Doug Somm until after about the second record came out, and we started talking on the phone, and we had these great conversations, and um, Doug liked to just get in his car and drive. So, you know, eventually he said, well, you know, I think I'm going to come up to Canada and visit you. And I said, great, you know. He said, can we maybe meet on the West Coast? And I said, yeah, I'm going to the Vancouver Folk Festival. Uh, would you be interested in going there? And we can meet there. So he drove up um, with his uh, partner at the time, and uh, um, the two of them checked into a hotel, and, and it was um, I got them passes to the Folk Festival, and we ended up hanging out. Then we ended up going on a fishing trip in northern BC and just becoming friends. And then he started uh, coming to Edmonton. I booked the Edmonton Folk Festival for several years, and I started booking Doug Somm, and I think he came for about five or six years in a row. And it was Doug with a whole bunch of people that he was already friends with, too. Uh, Rick Danko and Garth Hudson and Danny O'Keefe. Um, but anyway, I, I got to know Doug really well. And he liked Canada. So because he, he was kind of a free spirit, he would drive up to Edmonton and just stay. Instead of, you know, going back after the festival, he'd stay at my place quite a bit. And, 
and we put together this band basically for Doug and it had Amos Garrett on guitar and Gene Taylor on piano and we called it the Amos Garrett, Doug Somm, Gene Taylor Band. Uh, we did one album uh, in 1988. I think it came out in 89 and uh, was quite successful in Canada. Uh, we licensed it around the world. And um, as a result of that uh, record, we won a Juno Award in Canada for that release. And we got offers to tour in Japan. And so I ended up kind of being the de facto manager and traveling with uh, Doug Somm at all these Canadian festivals and then going to Japan, um, doing a live record in Japan with that same band. So Doug was a dear, dear friend and um, one of the most talented people I ever, I ever had a chance to meet. Yeah, and you mentioned Amos Garrett, who is a great, great guitar player, and he also played a lot of sessions around Woodstock. Um, how did you get to work with him? Amos uh, was Canadian and um, used to play in Toronto uh, with the uh, Great Speckled Bird. His first kind of claim to fame was a, as a member of the Great Speckled Bird, which was Ian and Sylvia. Um, I had uh, um, heard Amos's music and, and heard Midnight at the Oasis and followed Amos's career. I thought the Paul Butterfield Better Days bands uh, with Amos on guitar on uh, two albums uh, were some of the best blues albums I had ever heard. So I was a fan of Amos. And Amos was also a fly fisherman and uh, a duck hunter. So he, he used to come out to Alberta a lot. Um, and uh, he would always be duck hunting in the fall and fly, fly fishing whenever he could, you know, in the spring. I got to know Amos and and uh, he was, um, he had left Maria Maldar's band um, living in the Bay Area. And then he decided to relocate to Canada and to Alberta for the fly fishing and the duck hunting. And we became friends and I um, became his manager and um, booking agent and then record producer. We ended up doing quite a few records together. But Amos is one of the world's unique guitar players. Um, he has a way of, of playing that you know, a lot of people would think would be a pedal steel guitar. He does three string bends and um, his solo on Midnight at the Oasis is just one of the great uh, guitar solos, I think, of all time. And that's really who Amos is as a guitar player. That's his style. And I think he's influenced people like Mark Knopfler and a few other people. Absolutely. I know that Colin Linden quotes him as one of his absolute favorite guitar players, I think. David Wilcox, too, and a few other people. But uh, but uh, one of the great albums uh, Amos Garrett played on was the, the Bobby Charles solo album, his first solo album he did for, for Bearsville Records. And uh, a little later on, you got to release some Bobby Charles albums on, on your label. How did you meet him? I first met Bobby Charles at uh, Midem again in France. Um, to the surprise of anybody that ever knew him, he actually got on a plane and went to Europe uh, to meet people in the music industry. Uh, very uh, unusual for Bobby, who was reclusive and, um, and didn't really like the music industry very much, but he was there and was walking around Midem, and, and uh, I met him, 
and I'm, I couldn't believe this was Bobby Charles. And, and so we ended up just being friends that way. We had meals together. We hung out together. And he was such a wonderful, charming, um, uh, amazing person. You know, uh, uh, it was a really good friendship. Um, and he was actually pitching a record that uh, was called um, uh, Wish You Were Here Right Now, which had uh, Neil Young on it and uh, uh, Willie Nelson and all kinds of wonderful people, Fats Domino. And it was, it's a, an, an exceptional record. And after all his you know, work at Medem, he didn't get anybody to release it, except I was really interested. And, and so we put it out um, in North America, I think for the world actually, and, uh, and that uh, started a friendship, and I, I went down to Louisiana and spent time with him a couple of times, um, was in the studio with him in New Orleans. Um, and for a man who wrote, you know, See You Later, Alligator, and The Jealous Kind, and I Don't Know Why I Love You, But I Do, uh, so many amazing songs, um, you know, you would think that, that this would be such a classic songwriter that, uh, you know, is even still alive. Well, back then, he was still a, you know, relatively young man, and he had spent a lot of time in Woodstock. Our mutual friendship with Amos Garrett, I think, really helped open the door as well. So I have to credit Amos with that. But knowing Bobby Charles was just one of the great um, highlights of my life, I think. Yeah, and we... With Amos Garrett, we mentioned Maria Mulder before, too, and you've had a long working relationship with her. Can you tell us a little bit about her and some of the projects you guys did together? Sure. Yeah, Maria Mulder, I think, is kind of like the, the, the grandmother of uh, Americana music. Those records that she made in the mid-70s, uh, Waitress at a Donut Shop, and working with... Uh, so eclectic um, artists. I mean, there would be one record where, you know, one song where Benny Carter's big band would be on there. And the next one would have Doc Watson on it. Another one would have James Booker on it. And of course, Amos was in and out of all those things. And, and Maria had some, some sizable hits. Um, so I was a huge fan. Just as a music lover, I was a huge fan. I, I loved those records. And then she started coming through on tour and I would interview her and meet her and just get to know her and then eventually uh, working with Amos occasionally I'd have the uh, um, the opportunity to put Amos and Maria together again on a concert in Canada or we did uh, TV shows in Germany and own a filter and things like that um, which uh, I, I kind of pulled together so I got to know Maria and then um, the first record we did together was called Jazabel. Um, and then we did a, a series of records where Maria would still do kind of big budget projects for labels. Uh, and then as a fallback label on projects she really wanted to do, um, uh, she would come to Stony Plain. And we've done a whole series of those, um, you know, jug band records um, with, you know, people like David Grisman, uh, Dan Hicks uh, as special guests. Um, Richland Woman Blues, which was nominated for a Grammy. I think we've actually had three Grammy nominations with releases that we've done with Maria. And Bonnie Raitt has been gracious to guest on uh, several of those records. Um, Richland Woman Blues was inspired because Maria and I were at the uh, 
at that time called the WC Handy Festival in Memphis. And um, we would go down south and visit Memphis Minnie's grave. And we did this several years in a row. And Maria just said, I want to record a record, you know, with this spirit of Memphis Minnie. And, and uh, that was Richland Woman Blues, which was quite a celebrated record. And I think one of Maria's best um, so again, a wonderful friendship, um, just based on total respect for what she had done, and and then having the opportunity to work with her on, on I think some really great music, you know, being part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a mutual friend, and that is Colin Linton, who obviously is a great guitar player, songwriter, producer, catalyst, and and lover of great music, especially blues. Um, besides being one of the most busiest and hardworking men in show business I know, and I had the pleasure of having him down here in Muscle Shoals a few months ago to do a recreation of The Last Waltz and got to work with him and play with him, which was a treat. But your relationship with Colin goes, goes way back too, and uh, can you tell us a little bit how that came about? And you're still collaborating too, so maybe kind of chronicle your journey a little bit sure a pleasure to talk about Colin Linden and all of these wonderful people but um, I used to go to the Winnipeg Folk Festival um, in the the mid-70s uh, that was the kind of the after Mariposa in Canada Winnipeg was the one that really uh, came along and and uh, they used to have some wonderful people there and uh, Sam Chapman was one um, from uh, uh, legendary Mississippi uh, Delta, you know, recordings. Um, and uh, so Sam Chapman was there, and I was doing an interview with, with Sam Chapman, which consisted really of him kind of playing and talking and playing and talking. And this teenager, maybe, I don't know, 14 or 15, was sitting next to Sam Chapman with his guitar, kind of taking a lesson at the same time. And so I was there with my tape recorder, and that was Colin Linden sitting next to Sam Chapman. Um, and so it's nice to have actually a record of the very first time that you met somebody, uh, especially when they're so young, playing with a blues legend. And that was Colin. He, he, was, um, he was a student of, of uh, you know, great blues. You know, he was, you know, a friend of Howlin' Wolf's when he was 11 years old. His mom used to take him to go see Howlin' Wolf and, and repeatedly. And there's a great photo of Colin and Howlin' Wolf together. That he, I believe, still carries around with him in his wallet. Too. He does. He carries that in his wallet. Uh, so that led to a, a friendship with Colin that just went on. And uh, I think it was 1982, his very first studio album was released on Stony Plain Records. Um, so we, uh, we became, you know, we were, we were friends then, and I was trying to help him get gigs across Canada. Um, then uh, just last year, we ended up uh, working together again on his latest record, um, and in between, we remained uh, good friends, and Colin is just one of the nicest people, as you said. Um, so for me to uh, have that uh, that you know long-term friendship with with Colin has been really rewarding, and to see his success, you know, it's wonderful to see somebody develop from being a young teenager who loves music to traveling the world and and being the music director. Um, 
on the Nashville TV show and being on stage with Bob Dylan and Amy Lou Harris and having success with uh, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, uh, playing sessions with Greg Allman um, and being T-Bone Burnett's understudy, if you would. Playing in Bob Dylan's band is another one. Yeah. Absolutely. And another thing we have in common, Colin and I and, and all of us and you being Canadian, my favorite band of all time was the band obviously which is mostly canadian and i hope everybody knows that too uh, and you mentioned uh, rick danko a little bit earlier but can you tell me a little bit kind of how the band kind of fits in here and what the band kind of meant to you sure well as you well know colin linden's favorite all-time band is the band and the favorite two records of all time would be the first two records by the band uh, I love those records as well, and in Canada, uh, maybe especially in Canada, we're, we're very aware of Ronnie Hawkins uh, and the Hawks, and, you know, to my um, estimation, uh, Ronnie Hawkins is the most influential blues and roots music artist in Canadian history, because he worked with the band and, and the various versions of the Hawks that came later that included so many amazing musicians including Richard Bell who was a dear friend of Collins too that's right yeah Uh, so knowing that and and following that um, and those records coming out at a time when my tastes were really developing as a you know discovering what great records were what great songwriters were and of course the uniqueness of the band's um, uh, subtlety um, you know it was all, they worked as a band. There was nobody that was really doing wild guitar solos or uh, it was just a, such an ensemble. But um, yeah, uh, they were they were amazing. And, and when I was the artistic director of the Edmonton Folk Festival, pretty much top of my list was, let's see who we can get. And, and uh, Rick Danko um, came twice to the festival. And the second time he came, uh, he brought Garth Hudson. And I had the band that backed them up uh, was Colin Linden and his band. So there was that was a really great way to cement their relationship as well because Colin Linden went on to write, um, uh, you know, material for the band um, and uh, get to know them and, and uh, befriend them, perform with them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we kind of started this up, uh, off with a doc song and uh, one of his most advocate uh supporters was cherry wexler and yes. cherry wexler is also one of my number one role models as a music entrepreneur and producer among other things uh and he he became an important part of your story too can you tell us a little bit how how that how that came yeah about? Again, with um, thank you, Doug Somm, because uh, when Doug would be staying at my place, he would get people on the phone and uh, and he'd say, oh, say hello to Doug Clifford, you know, from Creedence Clearwater. And I would go, oh, okay. <laughs> and and he'd give me the phone and uh, and uh, he'd say hello to Jerry Wexler, you know. And I so I talked to Jerry and uh, met him through Doug Somm on the phone, you know, several times. And then... Um, I guess uh, uh, when Maria uh, did the uh, Richland Woman Blues record, we sent a copy to Jerry Wexler, and he really championed that record. So then he became a big fan of Stony Plain as well, you know, between knowing that I worked with Doug Somm and Maria Muldaur. And he did the liner notes for one of our, our uh, 
you know, anniversary albums. I mean, you couldn't imagine how I felt having, you know, Jerry Wexler, my hero, you know, contributing um, several hundred words of liner notes, raving about uh, Stony Plain Records and the work that we had done. It was just uh, couldn't get better than that. So that was a, that was a wonderful uh, situation, and and Jerry was just really supportive. Um, I'd talk to him every once in a while. He'd send me all kinds of things in the mail and uh, keep in touch. Yes, and uh, we're here in Muscle Shows. We all know Jerry Wexler was very influential and very important to get this area off the ground musically and became a lifelong fan of this area and friend to many musicians down here. And uh, this is your first time, uh, your first trip down to Muscle Shoals, although for a long time you've admired the music. And uh, would you mind uh, kind of telling me a little bit what Muscle Shoals music or that concept of this area kind of was for you before you ever came here? Well, I guess as a blues fan and, and um, somebody who spent a fair amount of time, you know, studying, reading, listening, um, first of all, the W.C. Handy connection was, uh, was major. And to be here right now during the W.C. Handy Festival is a fantastic uh, time to, to visit uh, the Shoals area. Um, and of course, so much of my favorite music uh, and musicians and songwriters and singers were, you know, if you watch the film uh, Muscle Shoals, uh, you're just overwhelmed by all the great music that has come out of here. And, you know, as a, as a, even as a record collector, you know about these certain things. But then when it all adds up and you see pictures of the area and, and interviews with the, the creators, um, it's just, a, it's unbelievable. The stories that, that have come from this area, the songs that have come from this area. So um, it's, to me, to be here this first weekend, to have my first experience in this area is, is, is pretty overwhelming. And uh, to be able to go to the studios, to, to the go, go to the Alabama Hall of Fame, um, to, you know, yesterday run into Funky Donnie Fritz, I think maybe five times, in different locations, just walking around. I mean, this is such a walking legend. And then to have barbecue with him and to see him again today and to meet Jimmy Johnson and David Hood repeatedly and to see David Hood playing on stage with the decoys at a club, it just doesn't get any better. And then on top of that, you know, not only is this history still alive uh, with these uh, inventors of pioneers of this incredible soul music, uh, and southern rock music, uh, then you start to realize what's really going on nowadays and how much great music there is um, in the clubs and, how, and the songwriting community that's in this area is just unbelievable. Um, of course, you know, people know about the, the Jason Isbells and the, uh, you know, drive-by truckers and, and um, uh, Alabama shakes and, and the great success stories. Well, there's just so much of it here. Um, and I would highly recommend people come at any time and, and uh, come and hang out at Muscle Shoals. And, and if I'm talking to musicians and, and songwriters, um, I'm going to say 
don't go to Nashville. You know, maybe go to Na- Mas- Muscle Shoals and spend a little bit of time here first, and and then decide because it's a different. It's a great, soulful, friendly, funky environment. Very friendly. Yeah, and we're we're sure glad to have you down here and be able to show you all that because that's played a you know huge part in what I'm doing. That you know that transition from being a fan to actually coming down here and getting accepted and getting to to collaborate with all these people it is uh to be able to you know and as you can tell it's not very hard because they are so warm and welcoming and make you feel you know special and and treat i think treat their their visitors and their guests really well and they have pretty decent food too i i I must add which which (laughs) Which and I can't um, stress uh, and thank you uh, enough, um, Andreas, for uh, inviting me down, for opening so many doors, and uh, to see the wonderful respect that you have in the community from everybody, from these wonderful legends. Um, everybody credits you with pulling so much together, the community together, and uh, having people working on different projects together. Uh, so I, I can't thank you enough uh, for inviting me down, for taking me and uh, around and uh, letting me kind of follow you around. Well, you're very welcome, um, and I knew all along that you and Muscle Shoals is a good fit. So uh, <laughs> I was never worried about that. And uh, I would just like to let everybody know uh, uh, once again that um, Holger has a couple books out, Talking Music and Talking Music Two. One thing I want to mention, since you talked about Muscle Shoals, that especially in the second book, he's uh, he's interviewing uh, Dan Penn and Spoon Roldan, but the, uh, across the two books, there's other people like Sam Phillips, who has a strong connection to this area, Mavis Staples, who recorded some of the signature songs of the Muscle Shoals songbook, and uh, I can warmly recommend uh, your books to anybody, and they're available everywhere, and... Uh, it's, it's been real enjoyable for me to be able to talk to you. We've done this a lot off microphone, and that's been a new experience yeah. to me too. Also, I'm sure I can learn a lot from you <laughs> having all this history in uh, interviewing people in, in radio and so forth. And uh, what's important to me with this project is that all the people we talked about and all the great musicians, especially the ones that are a little bit more behind the scenes, that they get to tell their story and and people get to learn about their work and their their catalog so anyway thank you so much for spending your time with me today and we're going to go out and listen to some great muscle shoals music now we are andreas and and thank you and and just i just want to add a couple of things i I don't think I've ever run into anybody uh, uh, who has as much detailed knowledge and uh, um, specifics about any kind of music. Um, uh, nobody like yourself. Um, the knowledge that you have and the respect and love for the music from this region is just incredible. So thank you for sharing that. And I was thinking you mentioned Sam Phillips. When I interviewed Sam Phillips at his home in, in Memphis, he made a point of talking about Florence and coming from Florence and talking about how important this area was. And so he was one of the first people that kind of hit me to that, too. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, and we'll talk again. Thank you. 
this was the fourth episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Special thanks to Jimmy Nutt and the Nut House Recording Studio for hosting us. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. Mm-hmm.